I like the idea that we might be able to add that question into the change readiness index audit. <laughs> Do you have meat, meat and two veg every night? Yes. Oh dear, you're not ready for change. <laughs> How often do you change your menu plans? Yeah. How many different pairs of slacks do you have in the cupboard? What colours are they? Oh dear. Um, <laughs> You're listening to the Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Occupational Philosophers, the not-so-serious business podcast to spark creativity, curiosity and imagination. And hello, John. Hello, Simon. How are you? I'm well, my friend. Well, and it's very good to see you. And I want to kick off, as we do every week, with what's caught your curious eye, because as we always talk about, curiosity is at the centre of being a great occupational philosopher. So, John, what's caught your curious eye? Well, it's I've been getting curious about Wim Hof. I don't know if you've ever heard of Wim yeah, Hof. Yeah, sure. Yeah, He's the cold water guy. Yeah, And uh, in the UK at the moment, he's on mainstream TV, he's on the BBC, he's doing a, a reality TV program where he's got eight celebrities and he's taken them off into some snowy mountains somewhere and he's getting them to face various fears. <laughs> and as part of that, a lot of it involves jumping in cold water or taking cold showers or <laughs> throwing themselves off cliffs. So it's all these things. And uh, the one obviously that I thought I might be able to do, which comes back to being curious and experimenting, was cold showers. So I decided this week to start adding in a few seconds of cold water to my morning routine. And I have to say, I'm very pleased with myself. I'm now up to 20 seconds. <laughs> At the beginning of the week, my wife thought someone was attacking me in the shower. Yeah. Ha ha. Yeah, yeah. A little opera. The, yelp, yeah. the yelp was so loud. And that was only about three seconds. But uh, yes, just as we've said, that experimentation, I've built it up slowly but surely. And now I'm very pleased with myself. And it it means that I can now attend this uh, podcast at least fully awake. Yeah, good having for you, John. my brain with some cold water. So there we go. So I'm going to keep going with that. That's an experiment. It's almost like the January advent calendar idea yeah. that we had. I'm going for it. I'm going to try and do the full month and see how I feel, and see how far I've got. So there we go. I shall you report are, back my findings. You are looking quite sprightly, and look, not wanting to pour cold water on your experiment. I've been uh-huh. doing this since as long back as I can remember, finished with a cold shower. But you get to the stage where you can't get, if you get out of the shower just having had a hot one, you sort of feel like you're asleep. So it becomes such Ooh. a natural part of your thing. And even oh, during right. the middle of winter, I'll still do it. So hey, yeah. hey. it's good hey. times ahead, John. Good times ahead. In terms of, I'm doing it in the summer, of course, in the UK. So I'm a little. Well, you'll, you'll I see you'll, I go when I get to the depths of winter. Uh, you'll Wim Hof it up, John. You'll Wim Hof it up. I'm going to channel my inner Vim. How about you, Simon? Well, John, yesterday I was at a conference. I was a speaker, but I heard another speaker kick off this conference. I'm not going to reveal the, the name as yet because I want to try and get this person on our show. And he was talking around where the breakthrough ideas come from. And along the lines of it's serendipity and it's never in the way that we generally think it will. But he tracked something like 1,500 years or 1,000 years of breakthrough ideas and then looked at them, how these sort of breakthroughs happen. What caught my eye, though, who did he mention but Salvador Dali and his spoon experiment where he would fall asleep and then the spoon would uh, fall asleep, the spoon in his mouth, it would wake him up, then he would start and draw what he said. So I was sort of a little proud that Salvador was up there, but also just how he said, look, there's some things which can help to create this breakthrough, but it's not like a, a checklist that you might say, here's your five points for breakthrough, but just how these, look at these trends and these how these moments and you know how Archimedes, how he would have one in the bath, I think, and different That's things. It. So all Eureka of these things moment. we spoke about. Yeah, so this Eureka moment, I really just liked sort of hearing about this. I don't want to say too much because I want to try and get this person on the show. Anyway, that was yeah. mine, John. Sounds great. And today we've got a guest episode, Simon. Well. Um, so who is the curious cat we have with us this week? John, what a pleasure. And as always, you and I, we get very excited with our guests. But this week we have a tamer of ambiguity, a speaker of truths, and a solver of problems. Our guest is a global expert in change and organizational transformation. She's the author of not one 
but two books, the most recent being Change Leader, which offers 33 areas in which leaders can make small but intentional personal changes in the way they lead that will result in being able to navigate disruption better. Now, our guest has lectured and developed university-level curriculum for over eight years and is known for her ability to bust silos, empower big ideas to come to life, and is more agile than a leaping gazelle on steroids. Welcome, Dr. Jen Fram. <laughs> Thank you so much. I was going to say more agile than a crippled crab, but, you know, I'll take the leaping <laughs> gazelle on steroids. John Simon, lovely to be with you today. Well, lovely, lovely have to you have you here. <laughs> and maybe just following on from ourselves there, Jen, from my own and Simon's uh, curious things of the week, what's uh, anything caught your eye this week? Yes, yes. I've, I was thinking that when you were talking about that. I've had two things working for me on a curiosity level. One has been very pragmatic, which is do I think I'm going to be able to use silicon sealant to rework my kitchen bench this weekend. So I've been watching lots of YouTube clips to work out how does one do this. And the second has been more of a fascinating question for me, which I've been talking to people about the question, what would I be doing if I wasn't doing what I do right now? And getting people's responses to that has been really, really fascinating because they kind of they take it from two levels. One, they take it in terms of skill base. So they'll speak to straight away, well, you'd have to use your connecting skills and you're a curator and you're, they'll go very skill focused or they'll jump straight into a profession. And at this point, it looks like I'm going to be wavering between being a death doula, a anchor on CNN and the police commissioner. So make of that what you will, but it is a fabulous question to test a broad audience with to get a sense of how you're perceived. I think it's a <laughs> fascinating question. And have you actually spent some time thinking about it yourself? Like, what would I do? Yeah, yeah, I have. I have, Simon, because I've kind of felt this year there's been a real shift for me. And it's not that I am unenchanted with what I do. I love what I do. But there's been this kind of sense of, hey, I feel like there's a shift coming and there's something new on the frontier. You know, there's something in the outer periphery of my world and maybe there's another career for me out there. And so I'm just kind of, you know, I've termed it the year of gentle exploration because yeah. I don't feel a level of angst about it. I don't feel like oh, I hate what I'm doing. I've got to find something new. And I've kind of thinking around what areas really pique my interest but I thought this was a question that might unlock some insights from people, and clearly it is. <laughs> now, I, um, I quote you a lot, John, with, I used this again yesterday, a good question does the heavy lifting. So I like the fact that this is a question that does a lot of heavy lifting, and it made me immediately think, oh, I should be asking myself that because it may be, yeah, not that I'm same as you, I, I really like what I do, but oh, what would I do if I didn't do this? Mm. Yeah. Where are you in the world today? We have people that listen from all over the world. So where do where do we find you? You find me in my home office in the lovely village of Seddon, which is one of the inner west suburbs of Melbourne in Australia. And what's the weather like there today, Jen? It is dark, cloudy and spots of rain throughout. <laughs> lovely. So Can you take us onto the traffic now? <laughs> Sorry, no. <laughs> Um, traffic, about, was, uh, traffic was very fraught today, let me tell you. There were lots of snarls and road blockages throughout. <laughs> Let's get back to the news desk. <laughs> and uh, thinking about Simon's introduction there, Jen, lots in there, some lovely yeah. phrases of the kind of things you turn your attention to. But how would you describe what you do? What, as it were, are the intersections if you had to do a Venn diagram? And I love a Venn diagram. Uh I find it really difficult because I tend to, to spiral out in different things that take my interest. But I think, yeah, if we narrowed it down, we would say it is the intersection of people, change and technology. And then in terms of what you do, it's going to be I design, I deliver, I create, I write, I speak. I think that probably captures it. Yeah. The technology angle, the people and change, absolutely. I see mm. the technology. How does that play into that mm. uh, mix yeah. there, Jen? 
I am both a fairly ferocious early adopter of technology and that becomes professionally, that's really important because it's very difficult to help people with change if you're not prepared to experiment and to try and to understand things. And I think one of the strengths that I often bring to clients is the ability to translate technology into the language of what their people understand. So it's it's thinking about how can we use this technology and change so much of our change in organisations is focused on technology platforms, but then how do we translate it into a world where we become a little bit more comfortable with it? And building on that, this question of change around technology, is that what we call digital transformation, which is a word we hear all the time? And the reason I ask is a friend of mine who is in, uh, working for one of the big four, she said most of the uh, being you know, EY, PwC, KPMG, et cetera. She said one of our the clients will often come to us and say, we're undergoing digital transformation. Can you help us? Which actually transfers to, can you build us a new website? So I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm sort of interested in this notion of digital transformation. Is that where you change? I, I forgot what I was even asking, John. I've, I've yeah. Done it again. No, yeah. <laughs> I, I think you'll find be- this happens a lot, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I, st- I think- stick with it. It gets there in the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So will my answers. Don't worry. Um, you know, I think, I think digital transformation, to the point I think you are making, digital transformation is a term that is wildly overused. Transformation is relative to the executive's level of comfort and fear. Most initiatives that are described as digital transformation are actually technology upgrades. So they're relatively incremental, relatively safe. Those that I would be calling digital transformation have got a high degree of risk and uncertainty around how effective it's going to be. So there's a much smaller group of organisations that actually commit to digital transformation than those that look at sequential technology upgrades. Now, Can you get to a point where you are completely transformed through that pathway? Absolutely, you can. It's just going to take a much longer time to be a transformed entity. And I think the piece where I come in is you can't transform an organisation unless there is significant mindset behavioural change that goes with that. So it's not about the platform or the software or the infrastructure. This is inevitably a cultural transformation. For me, digital transformation is as cultural as it is technology focused. So Jen, this is a quick fire round just to get to know a little bit more about you and maybe some think of the, the journey that you've had that takes yeah. you to where you are today. And so are there some if you think about the sort of journey you have sort of got on from academia or school right through, have there been some big experiences that have, as it were, formed you, that have taken you to where you are today, whether that's very early life through school and beyond? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I struggle with this to understand whether they've been big experiences, like whether I've had a succession of big experiences or whether there's been very few big experiences. But I also see and and There are experiences that absolutely determine pathways and where you go and what you do. And I grew up in a a small business family with a father that was a very progressive entrepreneur and a mother who was a science fiction writer. And they were both, they came from single mother families, which meant I think that starts to tell you something about how they raise children and that level of sense of you have capability you can do anything and you've got creative options and you've got business options and things like that. And so I consider myself both extremely privileged and ridiculously lucky for that upbringing because that has certainly stood me so well with all of the multiple of career things that have happened. And I I always describe my career path as a snakes and ladder career. I think I'd had 22 jobs by the time I was 30 The only thing that was consistent, so this was in the 80s and the 90s, the only thing that was consistent was change. And so for me, stability was about building my professional flexibility. And the only way I can have some form of of security and stability and control is if I am flexible in approach and just keep giving things a crack because 
you never know what's going to happen. Now, certainly later in life, that got a little bit more structured and a little bit more intentional with what I did. And and I just, I've always been really, I, I think it's that combination of industrious, but also keeping an eye out for the future and weak signals has meant that I've had some incredible opportunities presented to me that other people don't get. And again, I, I recognise there's a huge amount of privilege in that. I got a sense that you've always had that ability to scan the horizons, as it were, just keeping it. You talk about peripheral stuff in some of the, the work that you do as well. It's that idea of just having the curiosity go out a little bit wider than you might normally. Yeah. Uh, have a focus on. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, I, I think you're right, John. And I think, you know, if you think you, if you're the daughter of a science fiction writer, then speculative yeah. fiction is kind of normal for you. And so that that creates a creative tension with thinking around what is the world today and what could it be in the future and how do we prepare for that. So I think that yeah. plays a, a big part in it. But I look at it and it's a very nonlinear career path. And I think the one thing that has been consistent alongside the flexibility is my willingness to give it a crack. So when an opportunity is presented, and again, if you've come from a family that believes in you, you don't hesitate, you just do it. And I think that's not everybody is afforded that kind of background. And there's some themes here I'm hearing from when you spoke earlier, being open to serendipity which I like to talk about a lot. And John sometimes closes his eyes when I talk about be open to the messages the universe is sending you. So just be open to what, you know, comes comes your way. Yeah. I, again, there's been a, there's a spiritual level of me that has always been really connected with the woo, which yeah. sometimes belies what we think when we think of someone in management, leadership, academia, and that very structured way of thinking and theoretical way of thinking, I do feel very connected with energy, with opportunity, with, and it's, it's almost, Simon, it's an antidote to my shadow self, which is the control freak. Okay. All right. So <laughs> being aware that I have this strong inclination to control things means that I absolutely have to be attentive to opportunities to surrender, to be mm. balanced and in flow. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? To seize one opportunity, you've got to give up on something else. Yeah, you've got to be uh, moving along. And we've um, had previous guests, John, talk about that multiple personalities, how they all work in counterbalance and to each other. Uh, Tamara, like way back early, yeah, uh, Kitty yeah. Bit of a Bitch, she spoke around these multiple personalities, but in a very positive way, in a very yeah. positive way, like mm. we're saying that, that counterbalance to each other. Yeah, yeah it's, the it's, alter egos, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah the alter egos. It's your internal board, you have, which means you need teamwork, you need understanding of the different team members' strengths, and at which point do I bring forward the warrior, at which point do I bring forward grace, at which point do I bring forward these aspects of self which all sit within you to play in a way that is really harmonious with your surroundings and where you want to be. Yeah, it's just a final thought on that. I'm just curious around that because of the work recently with another team where you, we had the classic psychometric tool. I won't name which, there's a multitude of them, but the idea that they all then sat and they said, oh, you're yellow and you're red or you're blue or you're, you're a parrot and you're an eagle, whatever <laughs> one you choose to work with. But they, they don't categorise, but it is that. And you say, but it's not that you're one or another, it is that you just dial these things up and down. And it's that conscious dialing up and down that then becomes really interesting, which is a little bit to, as you'd say there, yeah, what am I going to bring forward today? I'm, I'm going to be a badger today. <laughs> <laughs> now, this was meant to be our uh, sort of a short and sharp little piece or a quick fire round. That's all right. We always blow it out. But <laughs> three words which describe you at school, Jen? Um, industrious. Theatrical, I was a theatre nerd, and athletic, I was also a sports nut. And maybe building on the, the journey piece, have there been particular people who've inspired you along the way mm. or maybe who inspire you now? <sighs> You're asking the hard questions for quick fire. 
<laughs> I think let's come let's come back. We'll do them next week. We'll come I'm, back. I'm just gonna go, it's, it's, it, you know who's inspiring me at the moment? It's the bloody young people. And I don't know if I've got to that age where all of a sudden I've given up on my peers, but I just like Grace Tame, Ash Barty, these young people in the public eye who are so courageous and eloquent. And I just I adore it. Now, just for some context, John, uh, Grace Tame was our Australian of the Year here. She's 23, 24, uh, sexual abuse survivor. She she campaigned so heavily in Tasmania that she got laws changed so the per, the abuser can't be hidden, if you know what I mean, because it used to be yeah. always, oh, you can't talk mm-hmm. about it and, you know, they've got the right to privacy. So she campaigned incredibly hard on this and got, like, state mm-hmm. law. And so her influence over the year has been amazing and her ability to call out bullshit for what mm. it is and it's politicians amazing. speak and waffle is as an absolute godsend and yeah had a quite prickly relationship with our prime minister which is very un-australian of the year if that makes sense like you mm. know normally a lot of sort of uh and then uh this year our australian of the year is a disability advocate who's won wimbledon wheelchair tennis and Billing Grand Slam, won all the Grand Slams, but he's also followed in the, the steps of, hang on, no, let's call out this bullshit for what it is, whatever that is. So it's, yeah, very, very inspiring. And Jen, on that yesterday, young people, I was uh, speaking at a conference for uh, a university and they had 150 student leaders there. No bitterness, so eager to learn. What a joy. <laughs> I, thought, well, I, I loved it. It was so much fun and everyone, yeah, it was so nice. And you've worked in that space as well. So just the yeah. fact that everyone's just going curious, open mind, like a sponge, what can we, what can we learn? And you leave that space just feeling so energised because, you know, we all pass this good energy around. So I, I love that. That's sort of my slant of what you're saying, but, yeah. So, Simon, do you think, seeing what you saw yesterday, do you think that will continue or do you think it is just a rites of passage that we all started off with that level of enthusiasm and energy and at some point we became crusty? I'd say a little bit of both, but I would also say, like, let's say you came through with this mindset of dad's an entrepreneur, mum's a science fiction writer. I'd say there's a lot more of that coming through now where parents are saying, don't be bound by this, this, and this. So, and very, as you said, I was thinking about as well, you've had 20 jobs by the time you're 30. That's the norm now. So I think there's a little bit of both. Like, yeah, I'm sure there's a point where we get a bit, get a bit jaded <laughs> like I was this week <laughs> till I went to that event. But I think there's also, there's a, a newness and a freshness and the ability to call out just that, uh, that BS like Grace Tame did. Like, we, no, we're not going to be told to get a pat on the head and don't worry about things and climate change will go away and all, you know. We're, so I think there's a, an energy and a joy that should make us be a little bit ashamed of ourselves sometimes yeah. with what their people are bringing to the plate. So, Jen, just wanted to talk a little bit more about the work you're doing, the themes that you sort of play with. I read this on your blog quite recently you've been riffing on a theme around exploration and pathways and it really caught my eye because obviously exploration and curiosity seem to be something very tightly woven together the the quote is exploration is an antidote to the unprecedented nature of the world we are living in the word unprecedented became ridiculously overused from about march 2020 faced with newness and considerable uncertainty People were paralysed and polarised with how to behave and what to do. And then you go on to talk about the pathways to explore and how that might bring about the sort of change. The question I had, aside to the connection between exploration and change, was just, is change the end and curiosity, creativity and imagination the means? I think change is the context. I don't think it's the end because by the very nature of change, you won't have an end. But it is the context in which we are operating in that things are changing all around us. And we know that this, even pre-pandemic, the sun comes up, the sun goes down, right? We change every day. But if we use a more common sense consideration of what we're talking about, these big changes around us that are affecting the way we work, the way we live, 
your second part of the sentence that curiosity, imagination, and creativity, creativity yeah. are the means to it. I think that they're the fuel with which we get through this or we get through the change that's in front of us. But to the yin and yang aspect of it, I think they're also the tax we pay that being creative, being imaginative, being curious doesn't, there's not a net neutral effect of those attributes. They all take a toll. And so I think we have to be really intentional around to what extent do we need to use that fuel at this point in time or can we let it be and just put the sails up and and flow with it or actually we've really got to ramp up the curiosity, imagination and and it's going to cost us but we've got to do it at the moment because it's really important to get through this next type of change that we're facing. So I think we have to consider what impact does being curious, you know, you look at curiosity. The biggest barrier to curiosity in organisations is the cult of busyness. Yeah. Mm. So if we want Mm. people to be curious, we're going to have a productivity dip. Are we prepared to pay that price? The biggest cost of imagination in an organisation is disruption and we lose our efficiency gains. Are we prepared to pay that price? So I think that for me, there has to be that level of consideration around how do we use those three and do we need to use those three and should we use those three to face into the change that we're looking at at the moment? That's a really interesting way to frame the curiosity, creativity and imagination. As you say, A is fuel, but also the bit, the second point that and we have to be careful as to how we use them because they exact a toll. Not just on the organisation, but I suppose there's something about how they exact a toll on people. Yeah, on me. Maybe where the where the fatigue sometimes yeah. can set in. Yeah. Gee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is there is there a tipping point though? Let's uh, I guess it's a broader question where we say productivity drops or slash profits drop or whatever that may be because we're not being. Let's say you're in the here and now and you're not looking at those next horizons. And that you might you talk, spoke around that sort of tension before. Is that part of that tension? It's not a tipping point, Simon. It's a cliff. Okay. You fall yeah. off the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, <laughs> and that's the precariousness of it. If you do not invest in creativity, imagination, and curiosity, it's not something you can just turn on when you're about to hit a crisis. You go over the cliff at that point. So, yeah, yeah there is a tension and there there is this consideration of do we continuously build our capabilities around creativity and imagination and curiosity and we build, I'm going to use the resilience word and I I really dislike the resilience word because I just think it's so overused, but I think of it in terms of a resilient system and a resilient system has adequate stores of creativity, imagination and curiosity which you can draw upon when they're required. Now, here's what I, I like this point, and it, it sort of references my own thoughts, and John and I have often spoken about, often only my own, my own impression in the last few years, there's a, a lot of people, you know, resilience. And essentially, often I might read it wrong, but it's tough it out, batten down the hatches, mm-hmm. tough it out, shit happens, tough. Right? But I was, th- I was thinking if you can't reimagine what the future is you want to be part of or actually reimagine your way to and redesign your way out of this space, you'll still be with your, your head down, toughing it out with the box over your head for the next two, three or four years. So I love that idea of around you, these are part of that well of resilience. Yeah. We use resilience as a way to white-knuckle through bad decisions and it becomes a proxy. (laughs) It becomes a proxy for poorly designed change. And and that's part of my discomfort with the whole resilience industry is let's look at the root cause of why you think you need resilience. Yeah, I, that's, I see that every time. I've always had a discomfort with that where you go, wait a minute, just, just improve the system. Improve what? Don't, don't place people in an environment and go, well, that's the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> wait a minute, <laughs> there's work to do. We often hear this word, change fatigue. Okay, mm-hmm. so 
how do we become more excited about change rather than sick of it? Is it a mindset? Mm. Is it a behaviour? Is it a different way of looking at the world? Do we need to be excited by it? I don't know. Hmm. Sure. I, I don't know that excited is the opposite of fatigued. True, true. Um, in, in my world, when I think about energy levels, you're kind of asking me there to go from one extreme to another extreme. Whereas if we just get back to stasis, the middle ground where change is normal yeah. for us and it's not exacting a fatigue response, I'd be pretty happy with that. I don't need people to be excited about change. I just need them to be in a space where actually, yep, I get it. This is why we have to do it. This is what I can do. This is my areas of control. This is where my, I don't have control. And there's probably going to be a bit more change coming along. As you were saying that, Jen, I was just thinking, yes, a, a place of acceptance mm. to say, okay, yeah. Again, we say it all the time, change is the norm. The only constant is change. I'm going to go philosophical here as it's the occupational philosophers, but the, the ancient philosopher Heraclitus mm -hmm. was, was most renowned. And I can see you nodding there, Jen. No doubt you've, you've had the quote on a slide at some point. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Put it on a flip chart, but the idea of what it was, it, he said that we never step in the same river twice, mm. basically. I mm. paraphrased it there, but the idea that the, the river is flowing, it's turning, it's changing, and we step into it. So every time it's mm. a different river. And we might be different when we step into it and where we step into it. So we're changing as well. And it's that philosophy that he tried to encompass there as gets people to, could get people to a place of acceptance. But there we go. Got yeah. me philosophy in, Simon. No, that's good. So if, we, if we're to get to this place of stasis and acceptance, what, what needs to change? I look at this as, you know, I think there's a bit of a holy trinity occurring for me. There is trust. So trust in those around you. There is hope for the future. And there is the ability to do something, agency. If I have a level of agency in change, if I have trust in those people around me, if I have hope or optimism around the future of this change, I'll be pretty accepting. I think you think about whenever you've had a physical injury or a health scare or something where you've had to change the way you behave to be able to be healthier. And so you've had to trust the medical practitioners around you. You've had to have a sense of hope and optimism that the future, you know, you mightn't be able to run like you used to, but the future's still going to be okay. And you've got agency. You know what, you, what role you have to play in it. And those three come together in such a way that you can move into a space of acceptance of your new condition, of your new state, your new physical state. And I've got a follow-up question to that. If people are adverse to change at home in their life, do they bring that into work? Does that follow, do you think, or do they, can, no. are they they're completely different or do they? Oh, I think it varies, and it varies in that you need to understand why it is that they're adverse to change in the home and perhaps they're in a particular relational dynamic that requires them to be the one that is resistant to change for the household to function. Whereas in the workplace, they can play a completely different role that I think we are malleable enough as human beings to take on different qualities and different contexts and different settings. And so, you know, I've worked with plenty of people who when you talk to their partners, they're shocked at the role they're playing as a change agent because at home they're meeting three veg every night and don't want to see, <laughs> don't, don't want to see any of these fancy foods coming on the table. Um, so, you know, um, I, I think uh, we choose elements of ourselves to come bring forward in different contexts and I, I don't think that's a reliable heuristic. <laughs> I like the idea that we might be able to add that question into the change readiness index audit. <laughs> Do you have meat, meat and two veg every night? Yes. Oh, dear. You're not ready for change. <laughs> How often do you change your menu plans? Yeah. How many different pairs of slacks do you have in the cupboard? What colours are they? Oh, dear. Um, beige. <laughs> Jed, one of the other parts that 
lays over a lot of what you do is this piece around agile, something I'm familiar with, and, and Simon is as well, I know, with design thinking and the like. And again, you framed curiosity, creativity, and imagination really well and connected it to change. I wonder if the same thing you can do with agile. How do you connect curiosity, creativity, and imagination to agile, the agile mindset, the agile approach? How does that mindset improve the change journey or the change outcome? Can you talk to that maybe? Yes, I can. Let me think about this. You're asking very difficult questions on a Friday afternoon, Tommy. (laughs) That's how we roll on this podcast. I know, and I'm here for it. I am here. One minute we're talking about meat and two veg, the next minute we're talking about agile mindset. Whoa. Uh, Look, I I think, okay, (laughs) how agility differs from change, as perhaps we were talking about it before, is the sense that you're operating in an environment with much greater uncertainty, which means that you have to be much more agile in how you approach it. So, Speed of delivery is really important to get that feedback on are you on the right path. So whether that is new products, new services, new policies, whatever that is. And whenever I have clients who come to me about we want to go agile, the question I'm asking is why? Tell me why. What is agile actually the fit for what you want to do? And they have to be the conditions there. So now if we say, what is the relationship of creativity, imagination and curiosity to greater uncertainty, it starts to make a bit more sense because in organisations or environments of greater uncertainty, we don't have the answers. So we have freedom to imagine. Creativity becomes very, very important to us as a method of testing new ideas and we need to be curious around the impact of those new ideas. I think in some ways, curiosity, creativity and imagination have a much more utilitarian form in the agile mindset. If I actually, yeah, if I think this through, they actually become tools, much more tools than they are in change because that's how we're actually testing the new ideas that are coming forward with agility. So, yeah, I mean, in, in so one of the other, we talked about what I do before, I'm also the co-founder of the Agile Change Leadership Institute, which offers training in this space. One of our modules is curiosity. So we have a micro-learning module on curiosity because of the importance in leaders employing a curious mindset, you know, the beginner's mindset, not having all the answers. Because when you're in deep uncertainty, you can't have all of the answers and you don't have the time to work it out. And especially if you're changing into, let's say, digital transformation, if I'm using that, you're moving to a new space, how can you have all the answers? You cannot because no one else is doing what you're, what you are doing. You've got no idea, or you do have some ideas, but you've got some markers, but you don't have any idea how this will land, which is why this whole piece around be curious, test, learn, test, learn, test, learn. Well, now we have what we call thought experiments, Jen, and I'm sure you'd be familiar with the idea that philosophers through history used to um, exercise their, their brains, used to tackle big themes by considering deep questions, and they would explore them through thought experiments. And so we have our very own today. This is called Wave Your Wand, and we recognize that you are big into change, Jen. So we're giving you the opportunity. <laughs> we we're giving you the opportunity. Sorry. I can be a change fairy. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yes, you are a, cha- a change fairy, Jen, just for one day. Well, probably about seven minutes. And you can create the change you want to see in the world. So with your wand, pick it up there, Jen. It's just, we've just, we posted it to you earlier, didn't we? There you there go. go. You got- so if you could change, we'll start easy. One thing about the world of work, go, change fairy. Compassion. I want compassion to be a core of the world of work. All right. Very good job, uh, change fairy. Now, the next one, what's one thing you would change about Australian kebab shops? 
probably the availability of them because I don't see too many around me. And now that you've said it, I want one. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think they're in the right suburbs. Okay. They're not in the lovely little village of Seddon. Okay. All right. John, next. Okay, re ready with you once again, Jen. Uh, what would one thing would you change about eating out in restaurants? I think I would change crowded tables, wait staff who clear your plates too fast, and that ridiculous practice of sharing the cost of a meal with a group of 10 people with one person has bought the lobster. Yeah. <laughs> and, the other ones, and the other one's had a bread roll. <laughs> yes. Oh, actually, here, oh, 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 I've actually written a blog post on this a long time ago. This is what we need to change. And it seems to be a very specific to Melbourne thing. If you're going to have poached eggs on toast, there must be butter on the toast first because butter adds the barrier to the water that comes with the poached egg. And too many places in Melbourne put a poached egg on dry toast with a little tab of butter on the side and it's all over Red Rover. Don't, it just doesn't cut it, does it? Well, our Melbourne chef you, listening, take note. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something like free wine. Oh, free wine. I love free wine. That would be great that for eating work. out. Yeah. All right. And next one, Jen. One thing you would change about the relationship dynamics between Iceman and Maverick in the movie Top Gun. Okay. <laughs> I feel like it could have been a little bit more homoerotic. <laughs> I don't think it was strong enough. <laughs> I think there was an unexplored tension in that movie that would have been improved with that. I always think there was that tension, wasn't there? There was a little bit of that tension. Yeah. Could have dialed it up. <laughs> there we go. There's a follow-up movie coming out, isn't there? <laughs> Quick, get him the word. <laughs> Here we go then, Change Fairy. Well, one thing you would change about crazy golf courses. What am I changing? Crazy golf courses. Crazy golf courses. It's one what thing. do you call them in, in Australia? That, you call them yeah. that? Crazy uh, golf? No, putt-putt. Oh, putt-putt. Yeah, putt-putt, um, yeah. The amount of children, the amount of children that are there. There's too many children. I can't perfect my putt-putt while there's all these little people running around and screaming and shrieking. It does not work for me. Adults only putt-putt. Oh, all right. Now, now there's an idea. And that brings us to the end of Wave Your Wand with Dr. Jen Fram. Now, Jen, as a not-so-serious business podcast, we like to distill some of these messages and we often look through the lens of individuals, whether that's individual in the workplace or just kicking about at home or in your life outside of work for teams. And we always say, look, we're all in part of a team, no matter what sort of role you're in, in some capacity, and also leaders and on an organisational level. So my question is, on an individual level, this idea of being a little bit more agile, which may be interpreted as being flexible, a bit more open, responding to change in a different way, and you can fill in the gaps there a little bit. How could we be a little bit more agile in our lives outside mm. of work first, and then how could that maybe transfer into work? I think in setting up this notion of an agile mindset, one of the things that we work with companies around is there's five things. Done is better than perfect. Let go of the perfection. Be comfortable seeking failure as just part of the process. Having a beginner's mindset, being empathetic rather than just engaging with people, and then lashings of self-compassion for yourself. Because in asking the individual to be more agile, they're going to feel really uncomfortable. And so self-compassion plays such an important part. But I think about, if you think outside of work, if we just took one of those, done is better than perfect, and said, have a look at, you know, see, spend 24 hours and see if you can catch how many times you seek perfection in what you're doing in a day or say that's not good enough, I think that would be really instructive for people. Because what if the next 24 hours was spent getting comfortable with actually, but we got that done? And I think a really great practice is the Kanban board. 
So putting a Kanban board up on the fridge with the family things that have to be done, you know, what's in the backlog, teach and progress principle, move it into doing only ever three things at one time because we don't want to overwhelm and overload, but then move it into done becomes a really nice agile tool that you can use with the kids, with the family. Now, if you're wondering what a Kanban board is, could you shed some light on that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So a Kanban board is a very, very simple board. It has three columns. One is the backlog of things to be done, so to do. The middle column is doing. And then the third column is done. And it emerged from Japan in the land of Lean and Toyota. And really, it's a way of making sure that everybody knows what you're working on at any one time. So you've got visibility and transparency of what you're working on. But you give yourself the dopamine hit when you move things into the column of done. So it's the progress principle that motivates you, keeps you enthusiastic, keeps you doing things. Yeah, I like this. And it's also that same principle of when you uh, you don't have something on your list, but you've done it. So you write it on and then cross it off. So you go, yeah. look at me. Yeah. <laughs> I do I do that quite a bit, actually. <laughs> Especially with the lists on the fridge that's been left there by my wife. I, <laughs> I did that. There we go. And believe me, things get done, but very little's perfect in my house, Jen. <laughs> well, that's it. That's because you're role modeling. This, this is no surprise. Uh, uh. Ah, my, my, uh, this I is no surprise now. to me, John. <laughs> and Jen, this piece around seeking failure, I really like this. I'm really it's sort of a, a bigger piece. So, just and again, we often hear this piece fail fast, which uh, is a bit of you know a hashtag we throw in with agile and we just run around and maybe th- throw those two out. But if we're to seek failure, how would we put that into a way that yeah doesn't maybe sound like there's a there's an end in mind where something doesn't work or something? How would might we yeah. re what, what's the context there? Look, and, and seeking failure is intentionally provocative because yeah. it makes people think around what does it mean to normalise failure as part of our trying things, Yeah, where it's not something that we're avoiding failure because we will be punished for it or it will be career, it will impact our career. So the context is how might we? Let's get curious. If we're thinking about a problem, then think about how might we do this and what might be the implications. Would we fail doing that? Possibly. What are we going to do if that happens? What would we learn from that failure that enables us to change the experiment and do things a little bit differently? And as you were saying that, that idea of seeking failure, of course, is that needs the right environment. There needs to be that trust piece there. Sometimes framed, we have to consider psychological safety, for example, that people can throw their hands up and say, look, I tried this and it didn't work. Yeah. And everybody goes, okay, let's move on. What do we learn? What's next? Maybe teams and thinking about how they can get ready to implement change, be match fit. What kind of advice would you have for teams coming together who are part of some change initiative or have to drive it in some way. Mm. Mm. There's nothing like the power of breaking bread together. And whether that and that can be done virtually, it doesn't have to be in the room, but actually first coming together and sharing a meal as a pathway to start understanding each other. And you spoke about your psychometric tests and stuff like that before. And I I think there's a place for all of those Mm. if they end up being something that you can use a common language to understand each other, both in terms of strengths or where people get stressed and how they behave. But the advice to teams coming together is to get some sense of how you're going to behave under stress because change will bring around stress first so that you've got some way of of riding through it rather than imploding or having really deviant behaviour occurring because all of a sudden we're in a world of pain and we didn't actually chat about this first, what were we going to do? Now, we might call that a social contract, but maybe it's just a common sense conversation to say, hey, how are we going to deal with the really shit times when they come about because there's a fair chance there'll be a few of them on this journey. That's, uh, again, follow-up to that, Jen, as you were saying that. It's it's really interesting, isn't it? Because we often will form social contracts, team charters, that sort of thing to say, look, here's how we're going to work together. But you, you're absolutely right. But then that's almost like in normal times because we don't have normal times anymore, do we? Uh-huh. We have uncertainty. We have stress, as you say. And 
those kind of big initiatives change you go no this is a different environment and i wonder if yes how you make that team charter fit quite a stressful uncertain environment and you're right just to talk it up front and say no no let's stress test this team charter almost does that make sense yeah and self-awareness john yeah i mean do you know how you react under stress Yes. Is that rhetorical? Very nice, yeah. <laughs> I used to scream and run around a bit. Oh, sorry. <laughs> ah, like what, that. What, what, a great, what a great question, though, to ask, I guess, to ask a team. Yeah. Like, think about how you act under stress, say, at home or whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. Think around what's our stressful situation going to look like if we all take that on. How do we, and it's not necessarily enough to say, oh, I won't act like that. It's actually, let's say we do act like that. How do we How do we deal with that? Is that, is that sort of that framework? Are you thinking? Uh, absolutely. And look, one of the things that I do in organisations from time to time is I come in to build a team in the organisation. And it's usually around, you know, a change team. One of the very first conversations I have with them is I say that under stress, I'm exceptionally task focused. And I will, Monday morning, I will not ask you how your weekend was. I will forget the names of your kids. I will have the checklist <laughs> and I'll be bang, bang, bang. That's a red flag. Here's the language and you all have permission to call me out on that and draw my attention to the I've lost perspective of relationships. But that only happens because I'm self-aware to go, actually, this is what I do under stress. I'm really task-focused and that does not create a healthy team. That makes people feel threatened. That damages psychological safety. And if a team member calls it out, I'm going to stop, take a breath, apologise and say, okay, let's check in. What happened this weekend? That signal of stress and how it plays out from someone, rather than being an opportunity for someone to react to that and then go, well, why did they say that? Or why did they do that? To go, I'm getting some feedback here. That's them under stress. Okay, let me get underneath that. What's the stress for you right now? Well, it's this. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, really interesting that you can use that to create, just to recognise it as just signals. It's value neutral. It is just data. Yeah. It's just data. It's not that you're a bad person. It's not that it's a bad situation. It's just data which tells us how you're operating at this point in time and we can make the call, is that useful or not? Does it serve us well? Yeah, I like that. Now, look, that probably leads into this space around leadership. We've looked and speaking of the Agile Change Leadership Institute, my sense is you've got some, uh, you've got some great sort of insights here. If we're to to lead how do you lead change like we hear this all the time and or how do you lead interesting change maybe how do you make i don't know yeah like what what's what's the non-vanilla question here maybe i've asked the wrong question sort of how do you lead change how do we kick ass with change or how do leaders like i don't know how do they find that stasis in the middle 10 million questions john summarize for <laughs> me, god, thank god we've got an edit Capability. <laughs> Can I bring a wand back at this point? Can the change yeah. come in? Wave it. Shut up. Wave, wave it in his direction, Jen. That's what happens when I, my, I let my mind out into the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look. Top, I, t- top tips for leaders, Jen. Top yeah. tips for leaders. Yeah. Look, it's really similar to what we were just talking about. It's change comes from within first. You can't be a leader of change unless you are role modelling the changes that you require in the organisation. There will inevitably be significant inertia and reasons why that is deeply uncomfortable for you as a leader to adopt those practices first. It will be career limiting. It will be limiting for you socially. It can be an incredibly lonely place to be championing change in your organisation. And so the importance of you knowing who you are as a leader, what your strengths are, where you flinch, where you don't become so critical in actually being able to lead that change. For example, we talk about vulnerability. And so a good leader of change is someone who understands where are their boundaries with vulnerability. Because you can do as much damage to a team by coming in and big emotional vomit for the sake of appearing really vulnerable because you've heard that vulnerable leaders are really good in change, as you can as the leader who won't share anything. So knowing your team's emotional intelligence and ability 
to respond to your level of vulnerability. But I think I talked before about that holy trinity of trust and hope and agency. The vulnerability comes into trust. How is somebody meant to trust you if you have all your walls up and you're pretending that you're comfortable with this change and you're not? That stands out a mile away. Just a follow-up to that, Jen, you're saying that. So um, the leaders can say, look, this is necessary. We've got to get there. We've got to make our way through this. And even I have discomfort here. Even I see uncertainty ahead. Even I don't quite know. The, I've got a rough idea of the landing area, but hmm. my gosh, there's a bit of traveling time in between there and here or here and there. Absolutely. You know, here's what I'm uncomfortable about. Here's what mm. I'm nervous of. Here's how I think we can mitigate that risk. That, yeah. yeah, John, that's the kind of language that you want to hear in a real leader of change. So, Jen, we reached out to our audience when we said you're coming on the show, as we often do for our guests, and we said, you know, we'd like to ask some questions to Dr. Jen, uh, a massive agent of change. And we've been getting our assistant to help us with the questions, but it's good because we've been very busy. But we'll just read them out as they come in. And, you know, people have been, well, when you have a change specialist, here they are. Now, this is, uh, I'll read it out, it says, Jen, I have a lint filter in my new washing machine and I'm wondering if you could advise how often I should change it. This is from Barry in Gwyneth Wells in Wales. Mm. I got, the, got the wrong end of the stick there. Haven't yeah, I? I don't know. Well, I, I think Barry needs to consider that there's new technology out there which actually gives you automated reporting on when lint filters should be changed and may wish to think about upgrading. But suffice to say, if Barry's sweaters are still coming out with the cat hair on it, it's time to change the lint filter. That could be the data that he looks for. Very nice point. So, All right, Barry, I hope that's mm. uh, answered your question. John, do you want to do the next question? Yeah, I've got Melanie from Wood Creek in Queensland. Jen, my partner, has the smelliest feet. The aroma makes my begonias curl up and wilt. He's also obsessed with AFL, never takes the garbage out, and keeps his toenail clippings in a jar. Do you think I should change him for a nicer model? Gee, what? They haven't missed the point here, sorry. I think our EA needs what, a bit what anyway. Huh? <laughs> Jen, I we, we can't not think, ask them, though. Yeah. Well, you can't not ask them, and I'd be really suspect of someone in Queensland being a mad fan of AFL. It just does not happen. So I think you've got your assistant making up questions at this point. Suffice yeah. to say, yes, change. Change, that's a, that you don't even need a business case for that one. That is, move them out. All right, well, let, let's try one more. And Jen, this is from Stephen, who lives in Bristol in the UK. Jen, I have a 10-pound note and buy four apples for 50p and six lemons for £2. How much change should I get? Ah, oh, Jen, yeah, what's this? Anyway, this is, this is, this <laughs> this is a terrible question. Anyway, far away. How much change should... Uh, so the, what was um, it? Hang on, it's ten pounds. A ten pound note. I buy four apples for fifty p, and six yep. lemons for two pound. How much change should I get? Well, I like I the fact that Jen's actually card. doing the maths, aren't you, Matt? I think he's used his credit card because I think that would add up to more than a ten pound note. <laughs> What's he got? He's got so four no apples, fifty p each. Okay. Yeah. Oh, he's but got six, all six lemons. Oh, he's pounds. got all six of them. Mm. Oh, oh, right. See? Two pound each. Oh, right. Yeah. A lot about the quality of our, our listeners, John. So uh, that a is new PR person. Letters of change. So, Jen, this is another rapid fire round. Uh, we've just got a few questions. Get a little bit more about you. Yeah, and just short and sharp, and we'll run through those now. Simon, do you want to kick off? One thing you couldn't do without in your life at the moment. iPhone. <laughs> What's your guilty pleasure at the moment? Reality TV. We are building the occupational philosopher's manigesto. What's one thing of all your learnings do you think should be included? Take more hot showers. <laughs> That's where my imagination creativity comes from. No, no, there's no, no, no need for explanation. That's great. All right. I, 
hot ones, not cold ones. Yeah, I know. Doing... I've got an issue with Wim, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a book we should be reading? The dictionary. Well, people just do not understand the words they're using. So really, a little bit more use of the dictionary would be helpful. Yeah, I like that. Now, Jen, let's say you've you've come into your later years in life. You've you decided to move to a uh, retirement home. You've been you're walking in uh, with the nurse, and she opens the door, and they say, uh, "Here's Jen. How would you like to be introduced to your retirement home?" Here's Jen. She is in denial. If you could all pretend that this is break time at a conference, it will make the transition much easier for her. <laughs> Lovely. All right, what so, next, Jen? What next? We all want to know a little bit more. What are you up to next? What's the what's a, a big piece of work, an exciting piece of work, something on the horizon that got your curious eye? I um in all seriousness, I think it gets back to that question, what would I be doing if I wasn't doing what I do right now? So at the moment, I am actively resisting the next big thing. I am enjoying sitting in a chrysalis and working out what's going to, you know, it's not even working out. It's just I am experiencing this newfound space of zen and serenity and just going, huh, something might be changing. So I'm actively resisting the next big thing. Where can we find you, Jen? Where's where's best to connect with you? Just uh, find out more about you, read around sure. the stuff that you do. Sure. Um, look, I'm a big Twitter head, so if you're on Twitter at Jen Fram, I see that you gentlemen are doing so well with your Twitter followers of two now. <laughs> I uh -huh, yeah. So I thought my mum had I thought my mum had stopped following us. Actually, <laughs> she must be still on there. <laughs> but other than that, LinkedIn. But drop me a note, let, let me know that you listened to the podcast would be helpful so I can discern between you and the vendors. Other than that, drjenfram.com or the aclinstitute.com, you can find me in both those spaces. And we'll put some links, obviously, into uh, the show notes as well. So, look, Jen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us on it's a Friday afternoon here in Australia, which is sort of like the, as we know, you enter into a bit of the twilight zone past about 3 p.m. And given the fact no one has an alcoholic drink in their hand except John, which is a different story at 7 a.m. in the UK, <laughs> in the uh, I think we've done uh, very well. So, Jen, look, we can't thank you enough for being on the show. I I've learned so much today, and this is a joy of chatting with our guests. It's just the, the inspiration. I literally see John's head shape has changed as well because <laughs> so many ideas bouncing around. And he used to look like uh, Ernie. Now he looks like Bert, if that gives you some context <laughs> for his. It's change. been tremendous fun. It's tremendous ah. fun. Thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for playing, Jen. It's been a real delight. And as to echo what Simon says, some of the uh, the ways you've connected some of the themes around change and agility to what's at the heart of this show, curiosity, creativity, and imagination has been really, really spot on So and, and very insightful. So thank you. You're very welcome. What a great show today. As we always say at the end of any show with our guest, Dr. Jen Fram, what a... How much insight can we squeeze from our guests, John? That seemed like the it just kept coming and coming. As I said, your head was bursting. <laughs> <laughs> and in such a short, sharp, punchy, succinct way that she just nailed a couple of the topics just so well. And that's what I've been reflecting on in terms of takeaways. And I think notes to myself, short, sharp, and succinct for my questioning, I think I should be run with. <laughs> Is that a takeaway? That's a takeaway for me. But, John, as we always like to do, we just distill just a few lessons. What would yours be from today's show? I'm going to get right to the heart of it, the real meat and substance of the show, which was, as Jen was talking about change and the agile mindset, she connected that to curiosity, creativity, and imagination just so well. So the first that they're the fuel to help you get through and navigate change. You know, you need curiosity, creativity, and imagination switched on at the right time. So don't start, you know, don't go for your fuel too early. Keep your tinder dry, as they say. But when you do, that's what's going to help you navigate change effectively. You have to be using those. And so in that regard, you can't just turn it on. You have to build those up. You have to build yep. those skills up, build that muscle. 
of curiosity, creativity, and imagination so that when you do need them to navigate and create yeah. the change you want, you're ready to go with that. And then similarly, she sort of said, they become the tools that enable you to work then in an agile way because you are dealing with uncertainty. You have to recognize that, stay curious, keep asking questions. So that agile and change themes connected to us so well. And she did it so brilliantly. So yeah, I was chuffed, really chuffed with that. I thought it was great. And then the second one, the advice around teams. And we said about... You need to get teams creating a, a contract or a team charter, which it was mentioned, but a team charter that will withstand the stresses of a change initiative. So to go, this is all good how we say we're going to communicate and be with each other, but what's it going to be like when the shit really hits the fan? <laughs> I think <laughs> how do we then amazing. navigate that? What's yeah. our expectations? What will the norms be? How will we know people are stressed and how will we react to that and help each other? So I thought that was a... Again, a really, really useful insight. From and would you use something like that just with your work? Because you do a lot of that uh, that work in that space. Was that an insight for you, something maybe to reframe when you do this stuff? Yeah, definitely. Almost that you would say, yes, look at the team charter, allow it to form in its usual way, but yeah. then put it under pressure, put it under, yeah. put it under a stress test. And I think the idea of stress testing a team charter is, is something I, I would definitely be thinking about. I just love how about that you, Simon? Oh, I love that question. How would you? Uh, how do you react at home when you think, "Oh, hang on, I'm not. I, I'm not a lot of those things on that charter because we don't. Like we yeah. we make different decisions." John, just a couple of. I really like this one. Uh, resilience is a proxy for badly designed change, and you could even just put bad design. So I've been thinking this week, probably under the pump a whole lot. And my resilience could be a whole lot better if my system was better. Does that make yeah? yeah. yeah. So the, yeah. I think the system I'm operating within is the problem that's causing me the need to be resilient. So check the system, check the way you're doing things, reimagine, and then test it, try it. So I know what yeah. needs to be done, but I haven't tested it, I haven't tried it. So that's the that's the key. And I just love this idea. Give it a crack. And I think every guest we speak to have given it a crack. They've done, they try new things and as such a new career, a new path, new doors open. Yeah. Yeah. I was smiling there because it was just reminding me again of the ripping the ass out of things and I don't <laughs> want to go there again. <laughs> but we, you still do. It's have a go at life, rip the shit out of it. So, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's less offensive. <laughs> yeah. That's my point. <laughs> We're still there. We're still there. But look, John, that, that brings us to the end. So look, hang out, join us follow us, go to our website, occupationalphilosophers.com. You can be one of our third Twitter follower, which would be nice. Uh, all of the links are <laughs> all of the links are on our website. And look, John and I, we are working on the advent calendars and also filling our social feeds with content. But, yeah, come and hang out there. And, John, as always. In the meantime, stay curious, make stuff, play more, and date life. Now, John, if you were to change maybe crazy golf or putt-putt, as we call it in Australia, what might you do? I can't believe you called it putt-putt. That's making me laugh. It makes me <laughs> smile. I, I don't know. I, I was thinking you could sort of jazz it up a bit with a sense of jeopardy, maybe some sort of uh, sharp edges or something. or Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> cliff edges around it. So a crazy golf on the edge of a cliff or something like that. And I'm thinking, and you're like in harnesses or something, so it's not completely unsafe, but there's, yeah. Yeah, extreme crazy golf ah. or extreme butt butt. Okay. How about you? Now, I'm also thinking, you know, Jen said get rid of the kids, so surely it's alcohol is needed on the putt putt course. And then, why stop there? Like DJ, house music, uh, some Ibiza sort of feels. I don't know, but there's so much more we can do. Just go to a nightclub.